All right, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to um, Genesis chapter 2 is where we'll be beginning tonight. Genesis chapter 2. We spent a little while in Genesis chapter 1. We looked at several things. We talked about you know, what it means uh, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. We spent a little bit of time there. Uh, we went over all the different days of creation and uh, talked about what God made and when He made it and uh, spoke a lot about all of those things. Uh, the most recent lesson that we had, I was looking at uh, what it means for us to be made in, in His image and in His likeness. And uh, that's what we talked about last week. And so tonight we move on uh, to chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first man. Now, in our previous lessons, we looked at the fact that God did create man, and we looked at uh, the fact that we were made in His image and likeness, but tonight, uh, as we'll find, Moses is going to kind of go back. Uh, he's, he's covered the fact that it happened. Now he goes back and he's giving us some more details uh, as to what went on uh, you know, with the creation of man and uh, what man was made for and all those kinds of things. And that's what we'll be looking at tonight. Now, actually, we begin a new, uh, a new division of the book of Genesis. The first division was the beginning of the world. And we were seeing how God uh, formed and filled the earth and, uh, and, and all the things that went into the creation of the earth. So that was the beginning of the world. But tonight we begin a new division called uh, the beginning of civilization. And uh, we're going to, again, see the first man. Uh, we'll move on from there next week, and we'll be looking at the first family. And, uh, you know, we'll move on, you know, as we go on from there. And, but we're looking at the beginning of civilization, and it all begins with one man named Adam, and that's who we'll be talking about tonight. As I said, in the last lesson we looked at what it means to be made in God's image and in His likeness. Uh, in chapter 2, we find where God finished His creation. Now, when we read, uh, I want us to go ahead and, and read uh, verse 31 from chapter 1, and then we'll go on into to, uh, chapter 2, okay? Now, it says in verse 31, at the end of chapter 1, verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, do you remember, every time He would create something, as we said, there was kind of a pattern that went on. Uh, God spoke it, it, it obeyed, it happened, and, uh, and then he, he analyzed what was going on and, and said it was very good. Every single time he approved of, of what he had made, he saw that it was good. Now it says there in verse 31, he saw everything that he had made. He looked at his finished creation he, after he was through forming it, after he completely filled the earth. He said uh, it is very good. And it says, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So the sixth day ended, and, uh, and at the end of that sixth day, God ended all of his work uh, of creation. Now, we look at the seventh day in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work with he, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. What does that word sanctify mean? He set it apart. He separated it from the rest. Remember when we were talking about uh, the creation, how that separation was a, a big part of what God was doing. He separated the, uh, the water from the sky. He separated this, the darkness from light, and all those different things that he was separating. We talked about the fact that we are to be a separated people, and uh, meaning that we're to be holy, we're to be set apart from sin, set apart from things that defile. Uh, we talked about how God is holy, and now we see that he took the seventh day and he set it aside from all the other days. He sanctified it. He made it holy to himself. And if you remember, in one of the ten, what's one of the Ten Commandments? The, the one that deals with the Sabbath day. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Right. To keep it set apart. To keep it set aside. All right. So he finished all of his work in those six days, and that day he set aside for, for rest uh, for himself. So it says that he, he blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. I think it's, it's very important as well to, to point out that the book of Hebrews uh, talks about the fact that, that God separated that seventh day, that Sabbath day, as a day of rest. And uh, then the, the writer of Hebrews brought out the fact that we have a Sabbath that is coming as well an eternal Sabbath where uh, we've done all of our work down here, our work is completed, but one day we're going to go home uh, to heaven and it's going to be a place of rest. We're going to have a sabbatical uh, when we get to heaven. And uh, that's just one of those great truths that are brought out about the Sabbath day. Now in verse 4 it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth uh, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field uh, before it grew... For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That's actually uh, verse 7 is where we'll be looking at next. Uh, but we find there in, those, in just in those beginning verses that all of his work was finished, everything that he had done, uh, all that work was completed, and, uh, and now we, we move on. Uh, we're going to kind of go back and look at uh, man just a little bit more closely. Now, the first thing we find in verse 7 is Adam's creation. Uh, again, Moses went back and gave us some more details surrounding uh, man's creation. If you remember, I was talking about kind of a style of writing that they had uh, back then, and Moses used this quite a bit, uh, where he would uh, state a truth, state something that happens, and then he, he'll go back and explain, you know, everything that, that took place. Uh, be kind of like saying, uh, uh, you know, Nikki made, um, I don't know, enchiladas, all right? And, uh, and then I go back through and I say, and this is what she did. She took out some tortilla shells, and I don't even know how you make enchiladas, so I'm not going to keep going from there. But, you know, that's, that's kind of what their style of writing was. He said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, he made that statement, and then he goes back and tells the earth was that born and void, darkness upon the face of the deep, and he did this, and he did this, and went on through. All right, well, chapter 1, now that we, we get down to chapter 2, we find that chapter 1 was kind of that beginning statement uh, that God had gone through. He made everything. Now he goes back, and he gives just a little bit more detail into how man was made and, uh, and what all was involved in that. Now, I want us, there's a couple words that I want us to look at as we consider this verse. The first one is the word formed there. Uh, down in verse 7 it says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. When you think about that word formed, what, what comes into your mind? Don't be looking at your sheet if you have one. What comes to your mind? Shape, okay. Anybody else? I don't know if you're cheating. Okay. Okay. All right. So, so to, to form something, you know, it kind of gives us that, that idea of him taking his hands and uh, and doing the the word literally means fashion, as a potter would mold or fashion a piece of pottery. Anybody ever made pottery before? Anybody ever seen anybody make pottery before? 
Okay, more of you have seen that, right? And they'll take that clay and, and uh, you know, I think that thing's spinning and they'll, they'll just sit there and they'll mold it, they'll fashion it. And I mean, they can do all kinds of designs, uh, you know, just in that forming and shaping uh, of that pottery. And so that's, that's kind of the idea that gets off there. It means he, uh, he fashioned man out of the dust uh, just as someone would fashion a piece of pottery. It denotes something that is very personal and very precious to the maker. So, you know, I know that I've talked about this quite a bit, and, and everybody does when we talk about the creation of man, but I just want you to think again of the fact that in all the other things that God made, you know, it was personal. He loves His creation. God loves the earth. He loves everything that He made. He saw it, and it was, what? Very good. It was pleasing to Him. He, he was happy with it. But everything else that He made, He spoke into existence. He said, let there be light, let there be cattle, let there be all those things. And, and uh, you know, they were all made. By the way, uh, if you'll look at the creation of the animals, things like that, you'll find that they were all made of the dust of the ground as well. Have you all noticed that? That when He called forth the cattle, uh, you know, the cattle and the creeping things and all those things, uh, He called them out of the dust of the ground. So God spoke and all of a sudden, that dust gathered together, and there was a, an animal. You know? and, uh, and so that's, that's something to think about. God could have done the same thing with us. He could have said, let there be a man. And, uh, and we could have just you know, rose up out of the, the dust of the ground, just like everything else had. But God took special time, He took special care to come down and, uh, and literally to form us from the dust of the ground. It, it, it signifies that we're special to Him. We're something that is significant, something that uh, is dear to His heart, something precious. I, uh, I asked Tiffany to text me a picture of uh, some of Cody's cars that he had made uh, for the Pine Box Derby. I think that's what you call that. And uh, I would have put Josh's up there, but we're not finished with it yet, and it doesn't look that great. So uh, I want, I've seen his. Uh, I went over there actually last night to uh, work on our car a little bit, and when I got there, Cody... He said, uh, he said, do you want me to show you some of the ones that I did in the past? And I said, sure, you know. And, and uh, he, he actually, I think he brought all of them out there and, and uh, just to see the pride, you know, that, that he had. And I could just imagine how much time did they spend working on those things? A lot of time, right? And, uh, I mean, I don't know what all tools they used, but carefully they went through, they, they designed everything, you know, they uh, picked out exactly how they wanted it to look. Uh, they cut it out. They, uh, they worked so hard on getting the weights in there right and, and doing all that. And they spent a lot of time together working and forming and, and shaping this into what they wanted it to be. And uh, why wouldn't he be proud of it, right? I mean, this is something that's special to him. Matter of fact, I'll tell you, I still have the cars that I made in, Boys, in uh, Cub Scouts. When I was a kid, Josh has them in his room. My dad and I worked for hours on those things. And it's something special. It's something that is precious to us because we made it. And, uh, and that's kind of how it is uh, between us and God. You know, we are His uh, creation. And, uh, and so what we're talking about there is just a fraction of the care and precision that God put into our creation. And I want you to think about something as well. You know, with, we talk about clay and just, you know, molding clay and everything together. Uh, but this was a really a spectacular uh, forming that God did. Think of everything that's in the human body, the, uh, the bones, the, uh, the sinew, the, the blood, uh, all that stuff. Uh, I mean, God was just a master surgeon. He just formed all of it together and, and made all of it uh, working parts and formed everything into what it needed to be. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, when a person dies, 
What do they turn back into? Dust. Takes the bones a little bit longer, but it will happen eventually. Turns all back to uh, what it was originally came from. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, I don't know all the terminology to go along with it, uh, but from what I've read and what I've heard and things like that, uh, the human body, everything in the human body, uh, the bones, all, all, everything that, that's made up in our body, uh, you can trace it back down to those, those main particles or whatever you call it that come from the dirt, that's in the dirt, found in the dirt or the ground. And, uh, and I mean, what a, that's just another sign to me that the Bible knows what it's talking about, right? And, uh, and God took special care to form us and to shape us out of the dust of the ground. Another word that I want to look at is the word breath. As we uh, continue in verse 7, it says that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Uh, the term breath and spirit are actually very closely uh, related. As a matter of fact, I believe I'm telling you the truth uh, about this. I, I have to look back at it, but I'm pretty sure uh, that in the Greek, there's one word for spirit and for breath, both, both things. Um, the word for spirit in the New Testament is pneuma. That's the spirit. When it talks about the, the Holy Spirit, it's the uh, pneuma hagios, uh, the spirit holy. Uh, you know, and when he talks about the spirit of man, the, the word pneuma keeps coming up. By the way, there's another word. Uh, when somebody gets sick and they begin to build fluid up in their lungs, what do they call that? Pneumonia. Pneumonia. Right. The breath. Pneuma. Breath. And so there's, there's a close relation between the breath of, of man and, uh, and the spirit uh, as well. And so it says here that, that he breathed into him the breath of life. So not only did, uh, did the lungs start pumping you know, air uh, or oxygen there in, that, uh, in Adam's uh, lungs, but also life began. Life began for, for Adam at that same point when he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So he had breath and he was a living spirit there at all at the same time. Uh, he began to breathe and natural life began. Uh, the lungs began inhaling and exhaling. The heart began beating. The blood began circulating. And the brain began working. Man was alive. I can just hear it now. It's alive. Right? There it is. It's alive. He was a living person. Which leads us to that last, uh, last little word that I want to look at there. Uh, living soul. I know it's two words here. In the original it's one. It's, it's nefesh. Uh, living soul. It became a living soul. Now, the living soul there uh, does not only denote physical life, but spiritual life as well. As we said, you know, man was made in the image of God, and one of the aspects of us being made in his image is the fact that we, unlike any other creature, uh, are physical, mental, and spiritual all in the same body. Uh, we're not just mental and physical. Uh, we have all three, just as God is triune, uh, man is as well. And so when we talk about him becoming a living soul, it's not just saying that he is alive. You know, a dog or a cat is alive, but contrary to how you feel about it, they're not a living soul. They're, they're not spiritual beings. And uh, they don't have souls like human beings do. And, uh, and so at the same time that Adam became alive, uh, you know, physically, he also became a living soul. He became alive spiritually as well, which tells us that Adam was created whole. When God made Adam, he was perfect. He was complete right there. He was alive mentally, physically, and spiritually all at the same time. 
Matter of fact, I want you to think about something. I know we won't get there until chapter 3, but uh, actually we'll talk about it today as we get down a little bit further in our verses. But if you remember, God said uh, that, that Adam could eat of any tree in the garden. Okay? I, I know you've heard this before, but he could eat of any tree in the garden except the one that's in the midst of the garden. And he said, in the day that you eat of that, what, what was going to happen to him? He would surely die. Right. Now, did Adam eat the fruit? Did Adam drop dead? So what happened? Did he die? How? His, his spirit died. Right. So at creation, Adam was made mentally, physically, spiritually alive. Everything was working exactly how it should have been. When Adam ate of the fruit, God did not tell a lie. He died. At that second, he died. His eyes were open, and he realized that, uh, that he and his wife were, were naked, and, and uh, the shame of their guilt was, was there upon them. Uh, the, the moment that he uh, committed that sin, but it wasn't physical death that he died, it was spiritual death. And, uh, and so we see uh, that, that separation, that distinction there. And so when it says that he became a living soul, that's, that's denoting that spiritual life uh, that became alive in him all at the same time. Now, there's three, words, uh, three other words that I want us to consider uh, just very quickly as we talk about Adam and his creation. The first, the first word is the word man. Now, let's read in verse 7. It says, Lord God formed man. Okay? The word man comes from the Hebrew... I know I'm giving you too much uh, Hebrew stuff tonight. Uh, but the word man comes from the Hebrew word Adam. Just think about that for a second. The Hebrew word Adam. Second word I want you to, to point out to you tonight is the word ground. It says uh, in verse 7, The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. The word ground is the Hebrew word Adamah. Adam, Adamah. And later on in another verse, uh, we find the, the name of this man mentioned for the first time, and his, his name was what? Adam. Adam. So think about that. Uh, man, the word for man was Adam. The word for ground is another form of, of that name. And so man was kind of given uh, the, the name of what he came from. He was made from the ground, and, uh, and that's what man is. He, is. he is dust. I think there's a psalm that says you know, that, that we know that, that we're dust. Right? That's exactly what we are. We're made from the ground. And Adam, his name meant, uh, it meant dust or it meant man itself. I, that's just, uh, I didn't really have anywhere to go with that. I just wanted to throw that out there because I thought it was interesting. All right, let's move on to uh, the second place. The second thing we're going to talk about is Adam's home there in verses 8 through 14. Let's go ahead and read those verses. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, uh, and there he put man... Excuse me, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also is in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river ran out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is uh, Pisan, and uh, that is which compasses the whole land of Havila, uh, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is uh, Delium and the Onyx Stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon, and the same is that could pass with the whole land of Ethiopia. 
And the name of the third river is Hittichel, uh, that is, which goeth towards the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. All right, so uh, what, what uh, Moses is describing there uh, is the, the layout, the land uh, that Adam was living in. This was Adam's home. Uh, the text says that God planted a garden and placed man there to live. Now, I know it may not be as significant, uh, you know, when I say it, but in my mind, I was thinking about that, that there, there wasn't, you know, it wasn't just part of creation, the things that God had already created, but it says that God planted a garden. How many green thumbs we got in here? Anybody pretty good at planting stuff? I know Brother Hall is, you know, he's not here tonight, but I know Brother Hall is really good at it. I'm terrible at it. Uh, but some people just have that gift. That's why we, you know, we say they have a green thumb because, I mean, it's just like they can just put stuff in the ground and it just grows up and they've got a, they got a knack for it. And uh, they do really good. But I want you to think about God planting a garden. Just let that roll around in your head for a little bit. God planted a garden. Imagine how beautiful that place must have been. How pretty, how, how luscious, how fruitful uh, that garden must have been. God himself planted this garden. And it says that after he planted this garden, that he took man and he placed him there in that garden. God gave him a home. That was to be uh, where Adam lived. That was his, his place to dwell in. This garden was near the head of four rivers, as we read here. Uh, Tishon, behind Hittichel, which is also known as the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Now, what it seems like, uh, just to kind of get a picture of what this uh, might have looked like, here we have this, this beautiful garden that God has planted. Uh, you know, I don't know if there's a fence around this garden or, or how all that works. I don't think it was a little area. I think it was probably a very large area uh, over in that, that very fertile part of uh, the Middle East over there. Uh, but there was evidently a river that went straight through that garden, and, uh, and once it got up from that garden a little bit, it split off into four different heads, and it gives us the name of, of what all those rivers are. It's hard to pinpoint where that might be. I think I have a map. Um, let me go ahead and say that this, what this signifies this uh, near the riverhead and all that is that the land was very fertile, and that was a perfect place for such a garden uh, to grow. Now, in this map, what we have here, uh, this is the Euphrates River right here. Okay, and this is the Tigris River uh, right here. Now, I was looking, and I don't really see a place where they all join together. They might, but I don't really see a place where these two rivers uh, join together, and we can't find the other two. I think the, uh, the other two rivers that are mentioned there, uh, I don't know what has happened to them. Maybe they dried up uh, after time went on. Uh, but somewhere around that area is where that garden was. And some believe it was right down in here, uh, Kind of in this area, I know there's other beliefs about where it might have been, uh, but just for an example, I'm not saying this is where the garden was, uh, but just if you see this one river that's going up from there, and then you get to a point and they start and it splits off, so you can just imagine if the garden was sitting right here somewhere, you've got that main river going through, and then you know it just splits up. But this is, uh, I believe, called the, uh, the Fertile Crescent uh, right here, just a very very fertile area of the world. And, uh, you know, I can just imagine uh, a beautiful garden like this growing uh, right there in that area. Eden was a special place uh, that God had prepared for man to enjoy the creation around him and to grow in his relationship with the Lord. Here's one thing I want to point, about, uh, point out about the, the, the Garden of Eden or the Land of Eden is that it was a holy place where God and man came together. 
And uh, so this was a place, you know, we were talking about things being separated or being set aside or sanctified. This, uh, this garden was a special place that God had set aside from the rest of the world. He had kind of zoned it out as being a place where he would come down and would, would walk with man, would, would dwell with man, and have communion and, and a relationship with man. Now, as history went on, goes on, we know that God continued to make efforts like that as well. Can you think of other places that God has set aside uh, to meet with people? Anybody? Tabernacle. Right, exactly. Tabernacle was a holy place, a place that was set aside. His presence would come, and he would dwell there in the tabernacle. Anybody else got an idea, a thought about you know, some places like that? There was a more permanent place. The mountain where he met Moses. Mountain where he met Moses was a yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mount uh, Horeb or or Mount. Uh, what am I trying to say? Oh, just Zion. Yeah, sorry. No, not Zion. What? Sinai. Sinai. Yes, I'm sorry. That just flew right out of my head. Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. Right. Uh, was another place that, that God set aside as holy. Mount of Olives. Okay. All right. The Temple Mountain, another place where that temple was set aside, and God would come and He would meet there with those people. Uh, even today, you know, this this church building is supposed to be a place that's holy, that's set aside uh, for us to come and to meet with God. Uh, we we don't meet with Him on the same level today as He has with people in times past. Uh, we can, but but it's not in the same manner that He did uh, there. But anyway, you know, throughout history we see where God has done that. But this was a perfect place where, uh, you know, it wasn't just God's glory that was coming down. It wasn't just uh, the, the feeling of His presence being there. But this was a place where God would actually come down and He would walk with Adam and He would talk with Adam. And they, had, uh, they were able to, to meet together because there was nothing that was separating them. Nothing stood between their fellowship and their communion with one another. And so this was a, a holy place uh, for God and man to be able to... to dwell together here on earth. Can you imagine how beautiful this garden must have been? I've had the privilege of seeing some beautiful places, uh, you know, in my life. Uh, there are some beautiful places here in America. Uh, there are some beautiful places in, in other countries that I've been able to see. But I would dare say that Eden was purposely the most beautiful place on earth that has ever existed and ever will exist until, until the end. And uh, just, just a perfect environment uh, for man to live in. It was a paradise. And uh, I think in, in some aspect, what Eden was was a glimpse of what heaven what was supposed to be. Uh, as you think about earth and, and life down here is kind of our preparation. Uh, you know, a time that we're allotted here on earth to, to prepare and, uh, and to grow closer to God so that we might enjoy more, more fully our presence, our eternal presence with Him there. And I think that Eden was just kind of a, a little taste of what uh, heaven was going to be like, the, uh, the fellowship and the uh, enjoyment, the, the presence of God. So, uh, you know, I, I just can't even imagine how great uh, this was to be in Adam's home. Third thing I want to talk about tonight is Adam's freedom, uh, verses 15 through 17. Let's go ahead and read those verses. Uh, we'll be reading them again as we go along, but in verse 15 it says, And the Lord God took man and put him into the Garden of Eden uh, to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. 
and the Lord, uh, that's where we're going to stop right there, not at verse 18, but, but right there at verse 17. Uh, he says, The day that thou use thou shalt surely die. Now I want us to talk about uh, Adam's freedom, and I hope that this will, will come across the right way as we go through this. The first freedom that we find here for Adam is the freedom to work. Uh, in verse 15 it says, And the Lord God took man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now, work may not sound like fun. It may not sound like a freedom to you. Any of you glad you had the freedom to go to work? <laughs> I don't see anybody lifting their hands or jumping up about that one, right? Uh, so work may not sound like fun, but God gave Adam the freedom to care for the garden as he saw fit. Uh, he, he was given this garden. He was given charge over this garden. And uh, so yeah, I want you to think about the fact that there was no sin at the time. At this point, there was no sin. So any of Adam's decisions would have been God-honoring. And so God, gave, God made this, art, this garden. He put Adam right there in the midst of it. And he, he, Adam had to have something to do, right? I mean, there's nobody to talk to and, uh, except for God, you know. And, and there's still 24-hour days, so I'm sure that, you know, maybe he got bored sitting around eating, uh, eating fruit all day. And so he needs something to do. And so God, uh, I'm, I'm kind of joshing around a little bit here, but... Uh, God gave him this garden. He said, I want you to take care of it. This is your responsibility uh, to manage it, uh, to prune the garden, to take care of it, and, uh, and you know, to, uh, to, to work here in this garden. So he had the freedom to, uh, to take this garden and just do uh, anything that he saw fit. And, of course, there would have been no simple desires or simple uh, motivations or anything there, so uh, anything he decided would have been fine. In this verse, we see Adam fulfilling God's design for him to have dominion. Remember that God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness, and let's give him dominion over all the animals, all the plants, over all the earth. And, uh, and so he was given uh, management, and we find here management over this garden as well to take care of it. We also find that he was given freedom to enjoy in verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Those two words right there will get any Baptist motivated about anything, right? <clears throat> Freely eat. We love that sound. I mean, that's music to our ears. And I'm sure it was to Adam as well. Listen, I, oh my goodness. Now, I love all kinds of food. I'm sure you can look at me and tell that. But I love fruit. I love, I love uh, just being able to walk up uh, to a tree and pull the fruit right off of it and eat it. And, uh, you know, and I, I've got a hold of some, uh, some fruit that wasn't so great, uh, you know, just, just pulling it off the tree sometimes. But I imagine this fruit here was, I mean, this was the best that you could possibly get. And, uh, and here Adam was. He had access to this entire garden. And I mean, and it says, of every tree, of every fruit that, you could, that was available, that was imaginable, it was all there to Adam. I mean, he could have a different fruit every day of the week. And uh, maybe every day, every day of the year, I don't know. But uh, he was given freedom just to enjoy this. Uh, at this point, Adam did not have to work much, if any at all, to keep the garden beautiful or to keep it fruitful. Uh, because God was blessing. Eden was a paradise that was blessed by God. And Adam had the privilege of just being able to enjoy it. So yes, there were some responsibilities. There was some work that he probably put in here or there. Uh, but he wasn't, he wasn't working himself. He wasn't really laboring there in the garden. Because God was just blessing, and He was able just to, to lay back and, and to enjoy, uh, you know, what God had given him, what God had blessed him with. Adam probably felt very much like he was in heaven. 
I know I would if I was uh, in a place like that. He had freedom to obey as well, verse 17. It says there, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, what we find here in verse 17 is that God set the rules for Adam. We know that any tree was available to him except one. He could, he could freely eat of, of anything but that one that was in the midst of the garden. And, and what I want you to realize about that tree in the midst of the garden is that that was the boundary. That was where God said, don't, don't cross it. He didn't say just don't eat off of this tree, but we find a little bit later on uh, that, that I don't know if, if Adam just emphasized this to Eve or what was going on, but uh, later on Eve, when she talked to the serpent, she said, we're not even supposed to touch it. So maybe what Adam said, you know, I, I know sometimes people say that Eve was lying or whatever, but I imagine, you know, God's teaching Adam. It's Adam's job to teach Eve. And so uh, God told Adam, don't eat of the tree. And uh, when, when he got Eve... Uh, he probably just said, you know what, don't even touch the tree, okay? Just don't get anywhere close to it. And uh, that, that way we can keep safe from it. All right? And so they, they weren't even to, to bother the tree whatsoever. So that was their boundary. That was where, you know, they needed to go. Now, this may seem backwards, but the presence of this rule actually gave Adam freedom. We think of rules, we think of laws as, as being something that binds us something that keeps us from doing something else. But uh, what we really find about laws is that it, it provides freedom for us. You see, Adam knew where his boundaries were, and he was free to live within those boundaries. I've heard this uh, before as well. Uh, if you take a, a group of kids, and, and I had to listen to this and think about, well, I guess it depends on what kids they are. Um, but if you take a group of kids and you uh, bring them out to an open field, there's no boundaries, no fences, no nothing, and you bring them out to this field, uh, it's it said that those, those kids will just stand there and just look. But if you take a, a group of kids and you put them in a fenced-in area, what are they going to do? They're going to go crazy, aren't they? Why? Because they know where the boundaries are. In, in the first scenario, they didn't know where they could go. They didn't know what they could do. You know, they, they didn't know how far was too far, or, or you know, they, it was just a confusion type thing. They didn't know what, you know, what was available to them. But when you put them in a fenced-in area, I mean, they just play and play and play, and uh, you're going to have some that will try to jump over the fence, things like that, but at least they know where the boundaries are. And that's what, uh, that's the point that we find here. With Adam, you know, if God had just placed him in the garden, and, uh, and, and you know, the, he didn't want to eat off this tree, but if he hadn't said anything to him, he just said, Adam, here's this garden, I'm putting you in it. And Adam had no idea what he could do or couldn't do. Can you imagine what his life might have been like? You know, well, all right, now that looks good, but I don't know, am I supposed to eat this? I mean, what am I supposed to do here? No boundaries. But God said, when he put him in the garden, he said, Adam, you can freely eat of any tree. So that gives him access right there. That tells him what he can do. Except the one that's in the midst of the garden, that's your boundary. Don't cross that. Don't eat of that tree. And so there Adam was, with knowing where the boundaries were, knowing what the rules were, he could, he could live freely uh, there within that garden, knowing you know, what, was, what was right you know, and what was acceptable to God. And that's the point that, uh, that I'm trying to make here. The same is true with us today. 
You see, God's rules are not something that binds us or prevents us from living. They state the boundaries and they provide freedom for us to live within them. I mean, it would be kind of crazy for, for us, you know, as Christians to say, well, you know, being a Christian is hard. Got all these rules. I can't get drunk. Can't kill people. If I see something I like, can't just take it. All these, I mean, these rules are hard. Like, like, you know, there's a lot out there that we, we wish we could be doing, but because of all these rules, you know, we just can't do anything. You ever feel like that as a Christian? I just can't do anything. That's not what the rules are for. God didn't give us the law. He didn't give us rules to, to say, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do, you can't do anything. You just sit there in your house and don't touch anything. You know, don't have a life. That's, that's not God's reason for rules. God's reason for rules are to say, look, this, these are the boundaries, okay? This is what you can do. This is what is allowed. And that's what's not allowed. Now, the things that aren't allowed to us, what are they usually? Dangerous, right? There's something that's going to be harmful, something that's going to hurt us, something that might hurt others. And so God says, I'm going to put a, a, a fence there and don't cross it. These things are bad. These things are going to be harmful, all right? But here is where you can play. These are the things that you can do. So the law doesn't, it doesn't bind us. God's commandments doesn't bind us. It gives us freedom to know what we can and how we can live. And uh, so that's what we find uh, when we think about uh, these rules for us as well, is that, uh, that God has given us freedom to live within what we know is right. So as a Christian, I, you know, I, I know what God's Word says. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I know what, what God's Word says not to do. I know what it says I can do. And so I'm not going to sit around and pout about all the things that God says I can't do. I'm going to enjoy what I can do, right? And that's how, that's how we all should be. Uh, we, should, we should live a life of joy and, uh, and, and freedom knowing uh, you know, that where we can and can't go. I hope that makes sense. Listen, God still wants us to have freedom today. With the boundaries that He set for us, we have the freedom to work according to His will. We have the freedom to enjoy life. And we have the freedom to obey Him. Uh, we've been given freedom to, to do all those things. Keep in mind that in all three of these, uh, also gave Adam the, the freedom to experience God's presence. When, uh, when he was working for God, like he was supposed to do, when he was doing his responsibilities, um, when he was enjoying life you know, and, and living within the boundaries that God had set for him, he was able to experience the presence of God in a way that none of us have ever been able to experience God. All right? When he was working within those freedoms... And the same is true with us. When we're serving God like we should, uh, when we're enjoying life, enjoying you know, where we know that we can go, and when we're not crossing over the boundaries that God has set for us, then we too are able to experience God in, in a much deeper level. I think so many Christians uh, you know, are, are living a life that uh, you know, they wish they could be closer to God, they wish that, that they could feel God's presence, they wish that they could, you know, in that sense, hear His voice and know what He wants them to do. They, they wish that they could uh, experience Him on, on a much uh, deeper level, as I said, but, but they realize that that's not there. They notice that, that uh, they, don't, they don't experience His presence like they should be, like other people talk about. And, and the reason is, it's not because God doesn't want 
to experience it, for them to have that experience with him, it's because they're not doing the things that he's laid out for them. They're not working for God as they should be. Uh, they're not obeying God as they should be. And, and if those things are not present, if we're not living within our freedoms like we should be living, then we're not going to experience God's presence like we should experience it. But when we have those things set where they're supposed to be, when we're living freely within the boundaries of His Word, then we get to, we get to know Him on, on, on a level that many others may never get to experience. And uh, that's something for us to reflect upon ourselves. Are you, are you experiencing God's presence? Are you feeling that closeness with Him? Are you walking with God? Are you talking with Him on a daily basis? Are you listening for His still, small voice? Are you hearing it? If not, maybe you need to check out. Maybe you're crossing some boundaries or lacking in some things that, that God has for you. Maybe you need to start uh, setting up those fences again and living within what is acceptable to God. I think the more we do that, uh, the more closely we're going to have that, that communion and that, uh, that close relationship that we desire with Him. That's all that I have for